Good morning, church. Good morning, church. My name's Jeremiah. Um, I'll be bringing you the Bible reading this morning. Before I bring you the Bible reading this morning, feel free to bow your heads with me and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so far for our series through Job in your word. We thank you for how it, your word teaches us, builds us, rebukes, and encourages us for your redeeming work through your son. We pray now as we continue in our series in Job to look to you in our dust and brokenness. When we are pressed down with sorrows and heavy in our circumstances without direction, Lord, help us and deliver us through your infinite wisdom. Lord, we pray now um, as Pastor Matt comes up to speak and open up your word, Lord, to faithfully preach your word through your spirit and shape us in your likeness. As we hear from Pastor Matt today, Lord, help guard our hearts, help us shield our ears from distraction, Lord, and focus on what your word may bring to change our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Cool. So today we'll be going through Job chapter 33, verses 1 to 33. So that's Job chapter 33, verses 1 to 33. Beginning with verse 1. But now, Job, listen to my words. Pay attention to everything I say. I am about to open my mouth. My words are on the tip of my tongue. My words come from an upright heart. My lips sincerely speak what I know. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me then, if you can. Stand up and argue your case before me. I am the same as you in God's sight. I, too, am a piece of clay. No fear of me should alarm you, nor should my hand be heavy on you. But you have said in my hearing, I heard the very words, I am pure. I have done nothing wrong. I am clean and free from sin. Yet God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. He fastens my feet in shackles. He keeps close watch on all my paths. But I tell you, in this area, I'm not right. For God is greater than any mortal. Why do you complain to him that he responds to no one's words? For God does speak. Now one way, now another though no one perceives it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, then deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds. He may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn them from wrongdoing and keep them from pride, to preserve them from the pit, their lives from perishing by the sword. Or someone may be chastened on the bed of pain with constant distress in their bones so that their body finds food repulsive and their soul loathes the choicest meal. Their flesh wastes away to nothing, and their bones, once hidden, now stick out. They draw near to the pit and their life to the messages of death. Yet, if there is an angel at their side, a messenger, one out of a thousand, sent to tell them how to be upright, and he is gracious to that person and says to God, Spare them from going down to the pit. I've found a ransom for them, 
Let their flesh be renewed like a child's. Let them be restored as in the days of their youth. Then that person can pray to God and find favor with him. They will see God's face and shout for joy. He will restore them to full well-being. And they will go to others and say, I have sinned. I have perverted what is right, but I did not get what I deserved. God has delivered me from going down to the pit, and I shall live to enjoy the light of life. God does all these things to a person, twice, even three times, to turn them back from the pit, that the light of life may shine on them. Pay attention, Job, and listen to me. Be silent, and I will speak. If you have anything to say, answer me. Speak up, for I want to vindicate you. But if not, then listen to me. Be silent, and I will teach you wisdom. This is the word of the Lord. All right, thanks, Jerry, and good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to be here. Good to be getting stuck back into Job. Uh, keep that part of the Bible open because we're going to be digging into that shortly. And it's also, you know, I love also seeing people uh, with your little Job booklets and uh, some people are still taking notes and doing that sort of thing. A uh, really great way to kind of keep track of all the stuff that we have uh, been learning through our series on Job. Uh, now, uh, we did get actually another question during the week. So let me see if I can get our little clicker going. Uh, here we go. Okay. So, question that came through. Did Job have the same belief system as his friends that God runs the world in a rigid justice system? If not... Why would he think that this is unfair? Why would he be so fervently seeking to argue his case with God? Now, if you weren't here last week, uh, Job uh, is very much kind of uh, wanting to bring a case almost against God, saying, well, why doesn't God answer me? If I could just stand before God, I could plead my case before him. Maybe God could change my fortunes around. And I think it's actually a really helpful question because, you know, does that mean that Job's kind of thinking that uh, maybe God just made a mistake and he's unfairly dealing out justice and, and so God needs to uh, change his system uh, like the friend, in the same way that the friends have been kind of saying, oh, well, God only punishes evil. Uh, well, I actually think that Job doesn't have the same system as his friends. I think Job's very much, he calls them the miserable comforters, uh, his friends, a very lovely name for them. Uh, but actually, a big part of it, I think, is that Job is, I think Job, in some way, he's even more terrified that God just randomly punishes people. And so the only way that he could maybe reverse things, if he could maybe come and have a word with God himself and to, to really kind of put his own case of his piety before God, uh, you know, if God just dealt out uh, justice like a robot, uh, then I think there actually wouldn't be much case to have before God because, hey, that's just the way it is and you'd be very much down the line of the friends. But I think... Uh, Job does have a different point of view, um, but his hope is that if he can uh, have a word with God, he might be able to change God's mind in the way that God is treating him. All right, well, as always, thanks for those questions. Feel free to keep firing through on the Connect cards or jump to our website uh, and find the Q&A there in the sermon section. Uh, well, I want to tell you quickly about a story. Um, uh, this is, you know, linking back to the whole uh, things that you found really difficult. Now, uh, the thing that I've always found most difficult and challenging and things I didn't want to do through life is public speaking. Yeah, I know the irony because that's what I do as a job now. But uh, can anyone remember, just go like transfer yourself back to school and like school debating. Uh, did anyone do school debating? 
Yeah, a few people. Did anyone like uh, got forced to kind of do that sort of thing, but just was terrified and hated it? You know, hopefully I'm not bringing back any traumatic memories for you. Now, I've, I always found a, f- a, a funny thing because um, I was the super shy kid at school, right? Uh, really reserved. I'm definitely not the one who would be jumping up to get on, up on stage. Uh, I was definitely not the one who would be saying, hey, yep, I'll, be, I'll join that debating class. Now, uh, one of the hardest things I, I ever found at school was actually standing up in front of people and having to give a talk of, of whatever description. Now, I remember, though, I remember a specific moment, and this was actually uh, at primary school. It was, uh, I think it was actually the, the speeches that you give uh, when you want to nominate for school captain. Now, I knew I was no chance of becoming the school captain of school, but I remember forcing myself to get up there and do it. And that was one of the best things that I ever did because I remember my headmaster at the time actually coming up and saying, hey, that was, that was a really good job that you did just then. And, and he was so impressed because he knew all the way through what I was like going through school, really shy, really not wanting to be in the limelight at all. And of course, uh, here I am today. This is a job that I do, is actually get up in front and speak in front of people. In fact, I probably wouldn't be here today if I hadn't challenged myself to go and do something like that. Now, I reckon actually in life, there's a lot of things that you have to go through, hard things that you've got to do that you may not really want to do them, and yet in some ways they're necessary for you to actually grow. That is, if we always just took the easiest path in life and I you know, just stayed out of limelight, never jumping in front of people, I'd never be, have the opportunity to come and preach the word to people. Now, I reckon suffering definitely fits into that box as well. We don't want it. We don't seek it. We don't intentionally want to bring suffering upon ourselves, and yet when it comes upon us, There is something about suffering that really grows us and changes us. So that's what we're going to be talking a little bit more about today, about what it is about suffering that actually changes us and can shape us and what God does through that very painful process of suffering. Now, if you are new or you're just joining us today, we've been working our way through the book of Job. It's a a book in the Old Testament of the Bible, and uh, uh, it's such a fascinating book. It's It's a book of poetry and lyrics really about suffering and about God and about how all those things relate together. And uh, it's such a fascinating book. Uh, We've been following the main character, Job, as he engages in these conversations with his friends all about suffering and about the suffering that Job's face. And uh, we, we get to this moment now where Job has ceased his final arguments. He said, okay, that's enough. I'm done. But before uh, God actually has his reply into all of this, we face a surprising new twist. There's a new entrance into the conversation. Now, his name is Elihu, Elihu. So we haven't met him yet. He wasn't introduced. He's not uh, one of the three friends. Uh, but he's quite an enigmatic, interesting guy because, uh, for a few reasons, actually, because he's the only one of the characters who has a Hebrew name, all right? So all the other characters are probably are not uh, Israelites, uh, as far as we know. Uh, and yet we have this guy, Elihu, who comes along. He hasn't been mentioned before. And he brings some new ideas to the table. See, if you've been reading Job through this uh, series, you might realize, you know, you have all this back and forth between Job and his friends. And then 
eventually all those cycles of those conversations finishes. And then this guy, Lahu, just pops in out of nowhere. And for six chapters, he delivers this long, winding speech. Uh, and uh, a lot of people have been very confused about Elihu. Uh, even scholars are still debate exactly his position and place. Uh, God doesn't refer to Elihu at all in his own speech later on, which we'll find out next week. But what we do see is that Elihu comes on and he brings in some new ideas into the conversation. And these ideas that are actually profoundly helpful. All right, now let's just have a look at those first few verses. If you've got your Bibles open back to 32... Uh, have a come back to 32 and just read those first few verses as, as uh, Elihu enters the ring. Verse 32, ver, uh, chapter 32, verse 1. So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barakul the Buzite of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry with their three, three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now, Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. See, what do we find out about this guy, Elihu? He's he's young and he's angry. But we do find out that actually he's probably done something that the friends didn't do, that he's been holding back. Right, he's been holding back. He's not wanting to kind of jump in there and throw more fuel onto the flames in the way uh, that the friends did. Uh, and so initially he explains, actually, he's been holding back because he didn't want to jump in there and, 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 and speak out of turn. But now that Elihu's heard all these arguments and from Job and the friends, he feels like that his time has come to speak. Now, I actually do think that unlike the other three friends, Elihu is a voice that we should listen to, that we should heed what he has to say. I think there's a humility, a slowness to speak about him that I think is quite nice, but uh, as you you read through the six chapters of Elihu's speech, you realise that actually his speech very much anticipates, in fact, it very much reflects God's own speech when God replies in chapter 38. Now, we're going to get to that next week, as I mentioned, but uh, for those reasons, I actually think Elihu, we can almost treat him a bit like an Old Testament prophet, right? Sort of in that mold, one who's uh, speaking words to be listened to, truthful words about God, rather than words to kind of discard like you might with the friends. See, Job, as Elihu speaks to Job, Job doesn't believe uh, that what the friends is true, but Job's got this argument that, Well, God hasn't said anything to me. God's been silent and he's frustrated by God's silence. So Elihu comes along and he responds. Firstly, he responds to Job. So come with me to chapter 33 again, chapter 33, verse 13. So Elihu here brings this argument to Job and he says, well, God does speak, but he speaks in lots of different ways. Verse 13. Why do you complain to him that he responds to no one's words? For God does speak, now one way, now another, though no one perceives it in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds. He may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings to turn them from wrongdoing and keep them from pride, to preserve them from the pit, their lives from perishing by the sword." his first point, God speaks and he speaks in dreams and visions, uh, uh, warnings, often in ways to try and stop, uh, to prevent 
punishment, save people from punishment. Then as he goes on, he says, well, God also speaks through, through pain and suffering. Verse 19. Or someone may be chastened on a bed of pain with constant distress in their bones so that their body finds food repulsive and their soul loathes the choicest meal. Their flesh wastes away to nothing and their bones once hidden now stick out. They draw near to the pit and their life to the messengers of death. Man, Elihu describes something that actually those who've been through really intense suffering knows. It is a torment that's a bit like being near to hell, isn't it? I think many a sufferer has described it being a bit like that. Now, Elihu's point here is that even though suffering may be incredibly tough for you, God may be doing something deeper and more important for you through that. In fact, I think this way, to summarize it this, it might be tough for you, but what God may be doing uh, is something in you that is really important. And, and as he said, he might be drawing you away, turning you away from the pit, from the messengers of death. Now, verse 23, let's read on. Let's see how he fleshes this out. Verse 23, yet if there is an angel at their side, a messenger, one out of a thousand sent to them to tell them how to be upright. And he is gracious to that person and says to God, spare them from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom for them. Let their flesh be renewed like a child's. Let them be restored as in the days of their youth. Then that person can pray to God and find favor with him. They will see God's face and shout for joy and he will restore them to full well-being. And they will go to others and say, I have sinned. I have perverted what is right, but I did not get what I deserved. God has delivered me from going down to the pit and I shall live to enjoy the light of life. See, what Elihu is really describing there is repentance. Repentance, right? Repentance, very kind of Christian word. It's a bit of an old word, but it's the idea of turning away. Make a, a U-turn, a 360 degree, just turning away, going another direction. And what he's talking about is the way in which a, a person might turn from their sin, particularly I think in this context, and to come back to God, come back to God in prayer in particular, and that God will restore them, God will look on favor with the person who repents, God will deliver them, and they will enjoy life, life as given by God once again. See, I think he presents a, a principle that the friends, I think, miss completely, right? The friends miss completely, and that's this, that God may be more concerned for our place in eternity than he is for our temporary and earthly comforts. Do you see that? Do you see how Elihu's making the argument that actually maybe suffering is the way in God speaks to us, changes us, moves us away from the pit and back to God, back to God in prayer that we would return to him and know God better. Now, Elihu, later on, he puts it like this in chapter 36. He says, but those who suffers, are those who suffer, he delivers them in their suffering. He speaks to them in their affliction. He is wooing you from the jaws of distress to a spacious place, free from restriction, to the comfort of your table, laden with choice food. Now, I remember I had a, a friend in uni. Uh, he, was a, he was kind of a, a, he was a few years older than me, but uh, as a Christian, he was significantly more mature. Like, he's one of those guys who just kind of think, man, you're just so, so godly. Yeah, I can see just such an obvious trust in God for you. I just wanted to know, you know, 
How did you get there? What are the things that grew you, that changed you, that made you into the, who you are, the kind of person with that, that really deep faith? Because I knew that I wasn't there. I knew that I didn't have that. Now, his reply really surprised me, actually, because uh, he talked about a moment in his life where things were going really well for him, really well for him. He was uh, doing fantastically well at uni. Uh, he was wanting to go on and do post-grad medicine. Uh, he, uh, you know, he, he had a girlfriend that he adored. He had a part-time job that played, paid exceptionally well. Uh, life was good. On the outside, at least, it looked like he was doing all the right Christian things as well, involved in his church and so on. And then uh, in, within a, the space of a couple of months, he lost his part-time job. He uh, got denied his place. He wanted to go into a post-grad medicine, but he didn't get in. But then the real gut punch is that his girlfriend then dumped him. Kind of the nail in the coffin for him. And he said it was at that moment that he realized, that he realized, that he was just riding high on his achievements and all the good things that were going on in his life. His identity was based on his popularity, on the girl that he was dating. And uh, honestly, he was saying, honestly, I wasn't really that in touch with God. I was loving all the good things that God gave me. But in terms of really deep down, spending time with God, that sort of thing, it wasn't really that high a priority. And he said to me, he could really articulate that that was the moment in his life that he came to realize that God needed to take away all those good things from him in order for him to be humbled, that he would be brought down so that he would start to look up instead of just finding his joy and his identity and all the things that were around him. See, I think in lots of ways, that's what life is presenting you today. You may be suffering, it's not punishment for Job. It's to call Job back to God. So perhaps God is even showing a kindness, allowing suffering to touch Job's life, so that in the process he would learn not just to love God for what God gives him, but to love God for God, that his ultimate joy and his peace and his security and his identity could only be found in his relationship with God. See, when Job learns what it means to honor God in each and every circumstance, that would be the thing that would keep him from the pit, keep him from abandoning God, keep him from um, chasing other, after other idols. But Job will truly learn to honor God, both when things are good and when things are bad. Now, church, I wonder where you're at. Where are you at in that? Are you right now enjoying a moment of blessedness in the sunshine where things are good for you? Then there's much to be thankful for. And I think Elihu's words are, well, be thankful. Remember your maker. Remember the one who gave you all those good things. Don't get full of yourself. Don't turn those good things into idols. Don't become conceited and confident in your own self-righteousness. Learn what it means to trust God in the good times. And that everything good comes from God's hand. Maybe even spend this time preparing for the time when suffering does come upon your life. But church, what about you if you're in the depths of the valley? Are you in the deep, dark night of the soul? Know this, that God may be doing something in you through that process 
that is wooing you away from the truth, that is bringing you down low onto your knees, that you might turn to the only one who can rescue you. I know that's not what you might want to hear. I know that as quickly as possible, we'd love to just run back into that sunshine, run back into the good times, run back to the comfort, the comfort zone. But friends, that might be to actually waste and miss what God is doing right now in your life. You see, I think the message, and part of this is the, really part of the whole message of Job, you don't need to run, you don't need to hide, you don't need to try and just numb away the difficulties and the struggles of life. It might even be your instinct to run away from God, to curse God, to demand that He take that suffering away from you. But the hardship that you're going through may in fact be part of the plan and the journey of God's a purpose for you. That you might look forward to the day when we can see God face to face and we can see the one who, uh, the one who took everything away so that we would learn to trust in Him. See, our hope is not to return to a comfortable life that has no suffering in it. Our hope is to return and to trust and rely on the maker of your soul. God calls us to faith, not to comfort. Now, David Williams uh, is an Australian doctor, uh, missionary uh, over to Kenya. Uh, he now works for CMS uh, at St. Andrew's Hall in Melbourne, and he's training other missionaries. Now, he said he noticed something that changed in the culture of the West, right? It's one of those things that you kind of do notice when you're a missionary. You know, you go overseas for 10, 20 years, but then you come back and you realize that your home country has changed. It's not, people don't think the way that they used to think. And uh, he, he actually said this in a really helpful way. He said, uh, we move from a guilt-innocence culture, a guilt-innocence worldview, to a pain-pleasure worldview. Now, uh, what he means by that is that in the past, uh, you know, truth, doing the right thing, was a big driver of our, be big driver of our behavior. Uh, he says, our conscience was a bit like the inner lawyer who says, hey, don't do that, that's wrong, don't do that, you'll get caught, Right? What's most important is doing the right thing. Now, there's lots of different uh, consciences and worldviews out there. Uh, maybe if you're uh, a little bit more traditionally Chinese, you might come from a more on a shame culture, right? And he says that, well, that's more like the inner grandmother, right? The one who might say, hey, oh, don't do that. The shame of it, right? It's the shame of things, that you'll never be able to look her in the eye again. Uh, now, it might be a grandmother, it could be a parent, any kind of authority figure, really. Uh, you don't want to shame those who've gone before you. But he makes a really helpful observation about the world we live in now, and particularly uh, as we're, you know, or living in the West and, and growing up in that. And this is what we've grown up with, and he calls it the pain-pleasure worldview. See, in that worldview, you're a pleasure seeker and a pain avoider. And he says, the conscience for you is the inner therapist who says, hey, go for it. You're worth it. Do whatever feels good for you. And I think the vice versa. Run away from anything that feels bad. See, I think under the pain-pleasure worldview, we do whatever we can to avoid pain and maximize pleasure. And I think that's so much of where our culture's at now. Uh, you know, even when we were at Forge uh, with the men's event a few weeks ago, uh, we asked a question about actually where, where, do, where, do our, where, do our, where does our heart go when we think about our money? And a lot of us said, well, our heart goes towards comfort. 
and freedom, to be able to do what we want, to be able to make ourselves happy. That's the kind of idol that we all live with. And he's saying, David Williams makes this really interesting observation about the way that this is shaping our culture now. We don't care so much about truth. We care much more about what feels good, what's affirming for me. And we want to run away from anything that feels bad or negative. And he makes another interesting observation actually about the prosperity gospel. He says in prosperity teaching, God's work in the life of the believer, it's not a slow growth in holiness, about redeeming suffering and anticipating glory. Rather, God's work is to bring the believer pleasure, prosperity and fulfillment at minimal personal cost. I think that's part of the popularity of the prosperity gospel because it kind of, uh, it kind of buys into the whole pain-pleasure worldview. See, I think Job's friends, if you think about Job's friends, they very much argue on a guilt-innocence kind of function, aren't they? You know, Job, you're being punished. You must have done something wrong. Now, I reckon if someone came up and said that to you or I, you're probably not going to fall for that as, as, uh, as a thing. But I reckon... I reckon the threat to us is falling into that pain-pleasure worldview now. That it's life's about avoiding pain, maximizing pleasure. And so we work with the idols that are driving us to, to, to just seek after that. That suffering has no meaning other than it's something to run away from. In fact, I think under the pain-pleasure re- worldview, we do whatever we can to minimize, to run away, numb, numb pain, treat it. We treat it with food. Sex, entertainment, we'll pop ourselves in front of a screen, in front of social media, whatever it is to distract us, whatever will give us that quick dopamine hit, that release that makes us feel good just for that fleeting moment. And so we're constantly addicted to trying to hit that next high because, well, God forbid that we would ever be bored or worse in pain or suffering. But friends, there is another thing. There is another thing. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not a gospel of avoiding pain and maximizing pleasure. It's a gospel of suffering and glory. It's a gospel of the the story of how the Lord of the universe entered into our broken and suffering world and he suffered with us as an act of obedience to his Father, Jesus gave up everything. He gave up his place in heaven to suffer like humans do. But not only that, to take on the punishment and the judgment of the entire world through his cries, through his tears, through his intense pain at the cross, at his moment that that displayed his utmost faith, that God would bring about good through his suffering. That's what the writer in Hebrews says, the son son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And church, this is what Elihu was on about all along, isn't it? Jesus fulfills what Elihu said back in chapter 33. See? And they will go to others and say, I have sinned, I have perverted what is right, and I did, but I did not get what I deserved. God has delivered me from going down to the pit and I shall live to enjoy the light of life. You see, church, the pain-pleasure worldview tells people to just run from pain, embrace pleasure as much as you can. 
But, you know, church, the Bible says that Jesus' disciples will follow the path of the cross, the path of suffering, then glory, the cross before the crown. Walking the path of the cross is walking down the, the road of both suffering and glory, and we live, we live in that tension. But Jesus offers us life in the fullness because that suffering is not without hope, that suffering is not without meaning, that suffering is not without purpose, that through that God is growing you to learn to lean on and trust in Jesus, that he might be able to take you from this world that's broken and suffering and take you into the eternity to be with him forever. You see, what did the Christian worldview? Suffering than glory, following Jesus' death and resurrection. Our conscience might be more shaped by Christ that says, hey, suffering might be hard now, but it is preparing me for the glory that is to come. See, the follower of Jesus doesn't need to flee or to numb or to deny or to minimize suffering into the pursuit of pleasure. No, we can enter into it knowing that there is a deeper reason why, that we can trust it, that it's for our eternal good. You see, Elihu's point is that God isn't silent. God may not tell you the exact reason why you're suffering right in this moment, but if you trust that it's for your good, it can save you from becoming jaded and cynical. You won't flee from it. You won't just try and numb it and minimize it. What can you do? When you understand that God may be speaking to you through your suffering, you can listen. You can trust. And you can know that even if God took everything away from you, if you have Christ, then you have life to the full. In fact, you might even learn to trust God, not just for what he gives you, but actually trust God for God, to love God for God. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciousness, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. He goes on to say this, I suggest to you that it's because God loves us that he gives us the gift of suffering. You see, we are like blocks of stone out of which the sculptor carves the forms of men. The blows of his chisel, which hurt us so much, are what makes us perfect. He says, let suffering do its work in you. Trust that God, as you look to his suffering servant who died for us, is bringing us, he is knocking off those hard edges. He is shaping and molding us into the people God is calling us to be. That he is calling us to turn our eyes to the eternal glory that is to come. Church, what is God doing in your life right now? How is God shaping you, molding you, chipping off those hard bits, grounding you to be more like Jesus? Now, as we end, I want to give you some words from Paul the Apostle, someone who suffered just like his saviour too. He says this to the church in Corinth. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Let me pray for us, church.
Heavenly Father. Lord, we come to you, some of us in the sunshine, some of us in the deep, dark valleys. But Lord, we come to you hearing this word, calling us to know you, know the suffering servant that you sent to Jesus. Know, Father, that you speak to us in our suffering, that through it you shape us, you mold us, you show us, Father, that our hope is not to be found in the comforts of this world, but in the one who suffered and rose again. That, Lord, our, the plans and purpose for our lives is not to have a perfect, full, fulfilling and, um, and life to be adored, but, Lord, to follow in the footsteps of our Saviour, the one who stepped through suffering, then into glory, and through whose life, Father, we can be all redeemed in him. Lord, we do pray for those of us who are going through those deep, dark moments right now. Might we know, Lord, we pray for them, and we lift them up, and pray that they would know you and the, the purposes that you are working out in their lives right now. Father, we pray for those of us whose life is going well, that we might not become conceited and trust in the wealth, the riches, the goodness and the blessings that you've given us. But Lord, as people, we need to know you and trust you. Might you turn our hearts looking to our Saviour, that we might not look to the things that are seen around us, but to that which is unseen and eternal and trust in him to the end of our days. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Well, church, I reckon now would be a great time for you to...